There was a confused period, then, in which it was established, after much repetition and pointing, that Atlanta would gladly undertake Zero's portrait, but did not feel up to Jack's. It was arranged that she should paint Zero here and now, and that Rosie, who was, after all, the acknowledged portrait painter, should fill Jack in later. And this is what happened. Jack put down his rods and sat on the grass with Zero beside him. Tess and Rosie watched, fascinated, as Atlanta clipped up her paper and set to work. Jack himself could not see how the portrait was going, but could tell from the expression on the others' faces that Zero's was at least as good as, if not better than, Thomas's. He was enchanted by this entirely unexpected development. Nothing in the world, it seemed to him, would boost Zero's confidence more than to see a faithful portrait of himself hung in a place of honor in the Bagthorpe residence. Having your portrait painted was a sign that you have arrived, he thought, and wished that he could write poetry, so that he could do a fitting epitaph for Zero, as Byron had for his dog Boatswain. Not that he's dead yet, he thought, and pushed the thought away because it was one he could not bear to contemplate. He took a sideways look at Zero to see what kind of an angle his ears were set at, but could not really judge from profile. Mrs. Bagthorpe appeared, followed by Mrs. Fosdyke. They both exclaimed extravagantly on the portrait of Grandma and Thomas, which was lying in the sun to dry before being taken up and presented. "'That's terribly good of Grandma, Rosie,' Mrs. Bagthorpe told her. She would have said this, however true or untrue it was. She believed strongly in the power of praise. "'It's the spitting image of that horrible cat of hers,' observed Mrs. Fosdyke. "'Gives you the creeps to look at it. He looks just like he's sizing up to take a spring at you.' This was something Thomas had done a lot of, and one of the things that had made him so universally feared and hated. "'Oh, and look at this!' Mrs. Bagthorpe was now peering over Atlanta's shoulder. "'Oh, it's beautiful, Atlanta!' William, who had evidently not managed to make contact with Anonymous from Grimsby, now reappeared. He was carrying the darts and board which he intended to set up in the summer-house, and then invite Atlanta to have a game. Playing darts was by way of being a very minor fifth string to William's bow. "'She's never painting that object,' he said. Then, grudgingly, "'It looks like him.' <laughs> Jack could bear the suspense no longer. "'Stay, Zero,' he commanded, and went round behind the easel. Zero had, no doubt about it, been captured, from his round black nose to his great furry paws. Even the color was exactly right, pale honey shading through to tips of auburn on his tail. Jack actually felt a lump in his throat. "'Looks that real, you could give him a bone,' was Mrs. Fosdyke's judgment, and Jack thought it very handsome of her, even if Atlanta could not understand the compliment. "'Yeah?' Again Atlanta stepped back to survey her work, and again the Bagthorpes chorused an enthusiastic, "'Yah!' "'Shall we let him dry before you do me?' Jack asked Rosie. "'We don't want to risk smudging him. "'In any case, there's something I want to do. "'I feel as if I'm being drawn to it by an invisible magnet.' "'He picked up the divining rods. "'You're barmy,' said William. "'They're divining rods, they are.' "'I know,' said Jack. "'You can't divine,' William told him. "'I wouldn't be so sure,' said Jack, "'in what he hoped were mysterious tones.' "'Oh, dear,' Mrs. Bagthorpe was looking worried again by this new evidence of her son's eccentricity. "'Do be careful, Jack.' 
I will, he promised. Come on, Zero. He walked off down toward the wicket gate, feeling the gaze of the others following him. Once in the meadow, he decided to give the rod from Mystery's first try. He fitted the forks into the palms of his hands, as Uncle Parker had showed him, and set off, Zero at his side. It was not easy, he soon discovered, to walk in long grass over uneven ground and keep your eyes fixed unwaveringly on a point only a couple of feet under your nose. Twice he stumbled in rabbit holes and fell. Matters were not helped by Zero, who evidently thought that this was going to develop at any moment into a new form of the stick-fetching game, and kept prancing excitedly about and getting in the way. Twice Jack found himself about to walk right into a tree. I'll never know whether I've covered the whole ground, he thought, because I can't see where I'm going. I'm like a thirsty traveler lost in the desert and going round and round in circles looking for an oasis. The only way around this that he could see would be to fill his pockets with dried peas or rice or something, as Hansel and Gretel had done, and he thought he would probably have to end up doing this. The sun baked down, and Jack found it easy to maintain the illusion of being in a desert. He seemed to be walking for a very long time, and his arms were beginning to ache. He had the feeling that no one was even watching him, and that he might be wasting his time. Once or twice he did think he felt the stick quiver, but when he stopped to test this, he realized it was only because his arms were tired and beginning to tremble. I can't keep it up much longer, he thought. As it happened, he didn't. The thought was barely out of his head when his foot caught in something. The rod flew out of his hand, and he fell headlong. There was an almighty yell. Zero was barking madly and had his nose down, and Jack glimpsed a long length of black flecks. History was repeating itself. Jack grabbed at it. It was too late. Zero had it in his mouth and was off. Jack scrambled to his feet and set off after him. Behind him, he could hear his father's yells. Get him! Get the brute before he chews it up again! <laughs> this time, Jack did catch Zero before he got <clears throat> to the mic-chewing stage. He had just settled by the hedge with it between his paws when Jack caught up. He whipped away the flex and saw to his relief that the microphone was intact. Mr. Bagthorpe was approaching, breathless, his red face contrasting arrestingly with his white arm. He was not, strangely enough, shouting. He seemed to be past shouting. Tell me, he said. Go on, tell me. No, it's all right, look. Jack held out the flex, and Mr. Bagthorpe examined the microphone. It'll be broken inside, he said. It's been rattled all over this field. It'll be broken inside. I don't think it will, Jack told him. And even if it is, it won't be Zero's fault this time. It'll be mine. What got into you? asked Mr. Bagthorpe, as if he really wanted to know. What have I ever done to you that you should walk deliberately onto me and my work? And why have you been half the morning walking around this field like a sleepwalker with a twig in your hand? You know, don't you, that whatever this numbskull doctor thinks, I think you need some kind of treatment. Yes, I know, said Jack, and I know it must have looked funny to an outsider, the way I was walking round. Funny, said Mr. Bagthorpe. Funny is right. You don't by any chance feel that you might be Moses. No, Jack told him. I'm dowsing, water divining. I see. 
Mr. Bagthorpe sounded really world-weary now. He is divining. Well, of course, that explains everything, I suppose. Where the devil did I leave the other half of this? He waved the microphone. I'll help you look, Jack said. And Zero. Fine, Zero. Zero did not understand this instruction, but Jack sounded excited. So he acted as if he did, and began prancing about and snuffing. Stop him! yelled Mr. Bagthorpe, galvanized again. I don't want him finding it. I'll find it. Jack called Zero, and they all walked along, looking about them as they went. It was not going to be easy to find a portable recorder in grass that long. I thought you were doing it in your study, Jack said. I wasn't expecting to fall over you. I told you, said Mr. Bagthorpe, there are listening ears. I've got to have privacy. If you're a creative writer, you need privacy like a cow needs a salt lick. I'm sure nobody was listening, Jack said. We were all too busy.